Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is All of It. I'm Allison Stewart, live from the WNYC studios in Soho. Thank you for sharing part of your day with us. I'm really grateful you're here. About the Grammys last night, women swept the awards. T-Swift announced a new album. Jay-Z avenged his wife. Joni Mitchell held court. And one performance warmed even the most cynical hearts. So I remember when we Enough so you can fly away. We gotta make the decision. Keep tonight or live and die this way. That was Tracy Chapman and Luke Combs. And the crowd went wild. 35 years ago, Tracy Chapman won three Grammy Awards, including Best Female Pop Performance for her song, Fast Car. Last year, Nashville-based singer-songwriter Luke Combs covered the song and took it to the top of the country charts. So there was a lot of cultural commentary about that cover, as you can imagine. But there was no hint of cultural divide last night when Chapman and Combs joyfully sang together. And Chapman's original version shot to number one on iTunes last night. The online response ranged from, quote, goosebumps to this is what America needed. And one internet commenter noted that while last year the conversation around covering Fast Car was often often divisive, but performing together last night and singing their hearts and souls out, Tracy and Luke demonstrated that music is a powerful force for good. Just thought that was a good way to start the Monday. Speaking of music, next hour we'll have live performances from Josh Ritter and our Get Lit conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning author Michael Cunningham. That is our plan for today, so let's get this hour started with a conversation about the early days of HIV and AIDS in New York City. This Wednesday, February 7th, is National Black HIV AIDS Awareness Day. In 2021, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimated that 1.2 million people aged 13 years and older have the virus. Now, 40 years ago, that information would not have been available. And we learn why in this season of the podcast Blind Spot, The Plague in the Shadows. The series takes us back to the early days and how the virus impacted vulnerable communities and is told through personal stories. For example, in the first episode, lead reporter Lizzie Ratner sits down with Louis Sider resident Valerie Reyes Jimenez, who recalls how in the 80s people referred to the disease as, quote, the monster. Let's listen. People just started, like, disappearing. Like, one day they were there, and the next day they were gone. These 20 people that used to hang out in this building shooting up, they're all gone. You know, like, car wash, papo, tearso, you know, cocoi. You know, like, all these people, they're all gone. Like, where did they go? It was pretty, pretty insane, you know, and um, a lot of people died. A lot. Like, when you say a lot... Can you give me, you know, how many people off the top of your head do you think you knew at that point who had died? At least 75 people from the block alone. 
That's from Blindspot. The season offers insight into the initial conversations about who contracted the virus and how and why that mattered. We hear from experts like Chief Medical Advisor Anthony Fauci, who oversaw HIV research during the time, about Harlem Hospital's pediatric ward and the nurses who treated children with HIV, and audio archives of activist Katrina Haslip, who fought for the CDC to include symptoms that affected women in the definition of HIV and AIDS. Blindspot, The Plague in the Shadows is a collaboration between the History Channel and WNYC. It's hosted by our very own Kai Wright. Joining us today in studio to discuss all of it is Lizzie Ratner. She's the lead reporter from the podcast and also the Nation Magazine's deputy print editor. Welcome to the studio, Lizzie. Thank you so much. Also joining us is human rights lawyer and activist Terry McGovern. She appears in the podcast. She is also a professor and senior associate dean at the CUNY School of Public Health. Terry, welcome. Thank you so much. And also in studio today, Kia LaBeja, artist and former mother of the Royal House of LaBeja within New York's ballroom scene. She also is featured in the podcast. Kia is the Green Space Artist in Residence right now and has hey. a companion piece, hey, hey. exhibition of uh, the Green Space. Nice to meet you. Hi. So, Lizzie, the first cases were reported more than 40-something years ago, for those of us who were around then, we remember. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, the name of the series is Blindspot. So, what did you think was missing out from the coverage and the way we think about the coverage of the early HIV-AIDS cases? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, starting in the present moment, when people think about HIV and AIDS, they actually rarely think about it these days publicly. Mm -hmm. When they do, there's this part of the conversation where people say, well, it's become an illness that mostly affects communities of color, black communities, brown communities, um, men who have sex with men. And, uh, you know, in fact, it's always been that way. If you go back to the earliest moments of the virus when it appeared. Um, and officially it appeared in 1981. Actually, our podcast will uh, get into the fact that it actually started appearing a lot earlier. Mm -hmm. But um, from the very beginning, it was a virus that attacked unequally, um, unfairly, that attacked uh, black and Puerto Rican communities, low-income communities, um, communities of gay men, people basically who were othered, whose society mm -hmm. did not want to see. Um, and all those many blind spots had horrifying consequences for the way the illness was uh, reckoned with at the time, treated, and the people who continue to be vulnerable to it today. Terry, in 89, you founded the HIV Law Project and served as executive director for about a decade. What do you remember about those initial conversations when you began the project? Yeah, what I remember is, you know, I was a poverty lawyer, so we were seeing a lot of uh, gay men living in the projects, gay mm -hmm. men of color, women. What I remember most is, you know, how incredibly scared people were, how incredibly sick they were, and how we couldn't actually fix any of the problems that they were encountering. There were huge structural, mm -hmm. what we'd now call structural racism and sexism problems. When you think about the kind of questions that were being asked, what were the the wrong questions that were being asked. Do you have AIDS? And the definition of AIDS was based on studies of primarily white gay men who had access to health care. So HIV, mm -hmm. as it attacked the immune systems mm -hmm. of people who had terrible health care or lived in overcrowded conditions or were women, it looked very different. So what we realized is that many people of color and women never got AIDS. They died of HIV disease. Mm -hmm. um, but the number one question to get a health care attendant to qualify for Medicare to, for everything was, do you have AIDS? Mm -hmm. 
I'm just let that sit for a minute. Let that land. Um, Kia, you were born with HIV virus, grew up having to navigate life in New York City at a time when there was still stigma around it. Mm-hmm. Would you mind sharing a story from your childhood that, that stays with you? Mm, a story from my childhood. Well, first of all, I'd like to say that globally, more than half of people living with HIV and AIDS are women and girls. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a fact that we I never hear unless you actually look it up, if you do your research, it's not something that is still focused on because we're still focusing on, you know, the populations of people affected. For example, there's, you know, one in two gay black men is going to contract HIV in their lifetime, which is something that is is heavily focused on, Mm. Um, but also over 50% of people living with HIV globally are women and girls. Um, For me, I grew up HIV positive uh, with two parents living with HIV. My mother died of AIDS when I was 14. Um, But I I had like a happy childhood, Mm -hmm. I think, you know. Like I'd like to say that my parents never made me feel scared. That's great. And that I always felt like I had a lot of love. And so for me, living with that virus, they made it not scary for me. Um, But, you know, after losing my mom and growing up as, you know, a person living with HIV and a young woman living with HIV. It was very, very difficult to navigate, um, especially because, you know, it was hard for my father and I um, to deal with it together. Um, And so a lot of my growing up I had to do alone and I had to learn a lot of things the hard way, unfortunately. And there's just not, or there wasn't at the time, a lot of resource information um, that would have helped me maybe learn things a little bit easier. What questions did you have as a young a young woman? Um, I think it's not so much about questions, but it's about experience. And I think it's about um, people guiding you to give you more experience. Like for Meaning example- Meaning you, you wanted to know someone with a similar experience? Um, yes, but also things like, for example, as a young person growing up, sex, the big thing. Mm-hmm. We, all, we first of all don't talk enough about communication and sex. And if you're a young person living with HIV, um, and you've never had sex before and no one tells you like, oh, like this is how you communicate to another person, your status, something like that, yeah. for example. I think that's kind of been one of the most mm-hmm. difficult things, I think, because I had a very a lot of hard experiences and dealt with a lot of stigma because I didn't know how to communicate. Terry, if, if you lived in New York City at this time, I mean, I can remember being... It's 89, 25. <laughs> so right in it and in the thick of it. And if you lived downtown or you worked in the arts, it wasn't really in the shadows. You knew somebody, you knew somebody who knew somebody, you related to somebody who maybe had HIV or died of AIDS or had AIDS. Um, so what was it like nationally? Because I think New York's a little bit different than the rest of the country. Well, interestingly, uh, you I know, know, I think, but I don't yeah, know. <laughs> no. So as we started to see that there was this kind of pattern where we couldn't win cases for women with HIV who were appealing their denial for Social Security, Disability, Medicaid, because they mm. didn't get AIDS, right? right. Um, I began to do a lot of outreach to lawyers around the country. And what you found actually was in many cities, it was incarcerated women of color who had put these issues on the map. You often had activists all over the country who were experienced the same thing. And also the poverty lawyers I I reached out to all were seeing the same pattern. So it may not have been has it may not have been as in your face as in New York, but 
Um, but the pattern was emerging, and in particular, activists in like Sister Song, in uh, Sister Love, in mm. Atlanta. I mean, so there was a lot going on around the country. But again, for people working with women and children, we were scratching and clawing to just get the issue named, right? Mm. It was a very different context. Lizzie, when you started thinking about putting this together as a, as a reporter and an editor, who did you know you needed to speak to? Ooh. Um, well, I will say that Terry was one of the first people. Everybody said, you have to talk to Terry McGovern. Um, and I was so glad that I did because uh, Terry was really one of the key people who put me on to the story of women and HIV. Um, and, uh, and, it, and it was a story, I'm embarrassed to say, that I really didn't know. I mean, I, I guess I assumed that women got HIV, um, but I didn't understand how significant the numbers of women were and obviously are, as Kia pointed out, mm -hmm. with HIV and the abject stigma um, with which they were treated and the way in which throughout the 80s and 90s and even to today, um, government doctors, the general public failed to recognize that women got HIV. So uh, it was Terry who really opened my eyes in that regard and turned us on to a story that is the subject of our third episode, which is the story about um, a group of women and one woman in particular, Katrina Haslip, who fought to change the definition of AIDS um, so that women's symptoms and the symptoms of other people were included um, in AIDS, but who also fought just generally to get the government doctors to recognize that women were struggling mightily with this epidemic and and that the very women who were doing that um, were women in prison, as Terry said, women who uh, in our podcast, you know, define themselves as the people who've been left out, the marginalized of the marginalized, the people that mm -hmm. society actively forgot and said, forget it, we don't want to deal with you. And it was really in this one prison in particular in Bedford and upstate New York um, that a really extraordinary group of women um, forged, I think, what is maybe the first group for people with AIDS, for women with AIDS in the country. Um, and then, of course, uh, outside of that, there was this remarkable movement. So Terry was definitely one of the first people I had to speak to. There were others, and I could list them all. Everybody was generous and amazing, but I want to let you also ask questions to <laughs> other people. So. Well, you know, it's, it's something you, it gets to in episode three is sexism in, in medicine. Mm. It's very, very deep. clear. Like it, it's deep it's and clear. Would you give a, a just one example of how it pertains to women who have HIV? Sure. Um, I mean, I think you know at the beginning of this story. Let me just say this was starting in the eighties. Um, and the idea of women's health was novel, and it was not popular. And mm -hmm. so, um, and so, the template for all health was the. Uh, you know, the male body or the body gendered male. Mm -hmm. And um, and so we have this one doctor, Kathy Anastas, who was a medical student in the late 70s and 80s and describes being taught anatomy, female anatomy, on what was basically a pinup. Um, mm. So that was, um, we were all pretty shocked when we heard that. There's also the fact that um, until the 90s, if you could get pregnant... You know, if you are quote, what people now sometimes term pre-pregnant, um, you are pretty much not included in most clinical trials. You could not be part of clinical trials. So all mm -hmm. clinical trials were being performed on, you know, male bodies. Um, and obviously, that's that's a problem. That's one of many, many problems. The one more thing I will say, and then I will stop, is that it's I okay. think 
So uh, I think the issue is also not just the sexism, which was deep and profound and across the board, but the particular women who were getting sick. And I think Mm -hmm. we cannot leave that out, that um, the majority of women who were getting HIV were women of color. Um, Many were low income. Um, Some got it through injection drugs. Some were given, uh, got it from partners who used injection drugs. Um, And so I think... Um, frankly, the racism and uh, classism and, and general bias and bigotry of that era really affected these women in particular. We're discussing Blind Spot, Plague in the Shadows. The first three episodes are out now. A new one drops every Thursday. I'm speaking with Lizzie Ratner, Terry McGovern, and Keila Beja. We'll have more after a quick break. This is all of it. This is all of it on WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. We're discussing the podcast Blind Spot, Plague in the Shadows. The first three episodes are out now. A new one drops every Thursday. My guests are reporter Lizzie Ratner, activist and lawyer Terry McGovern, and Keila Beja, artist, artist in residence at the Green Space, I might add. So, you know, uh, Terry, I was when you think about the activists at this time, tell us a little bit about what worked. So I think uh, what was pretty amazing is just as a lawyer seeing all of these people actually dying before I could get them Medicaid or figure out what to do about their children, you know. Mm -hmm. So all of the issues that that women were facing hadn't been thought out, right? Um, So... But on the other hand, you had this vibrant act up, which was, you know, using all of this creative direct action. So I, for example, went to act up because I didn't know what to do because I was seeing all these clients who had HIV Mm. and um, and and. And there was this incredible group of activists who was talking about the AIDS definition and all of these issues. And they were actually willing to work with us Mm -hmm. um, to organize, you know, HIV positive women. The leadership in changing all of this came from HIV positive women of color, incarcerated first. Mm -hmm. But really, and, you know, everybody was like, you know, these women aren't going to want to talk to the media, et cetera. Not true at all. Actually, we had to hold sessions where we explained what is happening to you is not because you did anything. Mm -hmm. It's because of discrimination. Mm -hmm. They didn't study women. They didn't warn you that you could be at risk. You had no idea that your child was going to end up HIV positive. So in a sense, we were able to explain the policy landscape and see this transformative effect on women Mm -hmm. who felt really terrible, right? I've never Mm -hmm. seen anything worse Mm -hmm. than women finding out that they were positive through their child testing positive when they had no idea. Nobody offered them a test. Nobody told them they were at risk. So um, the, the, the investment of explaining exactly why they were being discriminated against and how really paid off. And you saw women step into mm-hmm. their own power and really lead on this. So some of the most effective activism was really HIV-positive women talking to the media, protesting outside of Health and Human Services. You know, actually every litigation step we took was accompanied by really creative activism that centered HIV-positive women, and that worked a lot. Kia, what was the role of activism in your life? Um, so my mom was heavily involved. My my mother also found out she was HIV-positive not until 1993, which mm-hmm. is three years after I was born. 
um, she got very, very sick. Um, she got a cold that wouldn't go away. And she went in, they did all these different tests. And they're like, oh, let's just, just test you for HIV. And my mother, who is a mixed race Asian woman, um, heterosexual woman, they were like, ah, oh, you probably don't, but let's just try. Let's check it out. And um, the test came back positive. My dad's came back positive and mine came back positive. Um, yeah. Sorry. What was your question? Uh, I just got lost in my no, own story. Well, well, thank you. No, thank you for sharing your own story. Um, I was asking about activism, the role of activism in your life. Right. So my mother joined APACHA, which at the time was Asian Pacific Islanders Coalition Against HIV and AIDS. Um, and so she was like a member, a board member. She was also on the pediatric committee of ACT UP. And she brought me everywhere with her. Um, so I went to all different types of mm. conferences. I did meet other children. She was also part of a group called Just Kids, which was a group for um, families, basically, like parents who were living with HIV that had children living with HIV who were trying to figure out, what do we do if I die? What do we do mm. if both parents die? What do we do with our children? What do we do if our children die? They were just trying to figure out everything. Um, and so just watching that as a young person was very influential to me. And sure. so I've continued on with um, my activism through my art. Lizzie, we, we get to meet some of the healthcare workers uh, who specifically at Harlem Hospital and the pediatric ward. Um, some of the stories are, it's interesting. And I can imagine this was a balance when you put it together because some of the stories are really heartbreaking. Some of them are, are a little bit funny. <laughs> the, little, mm. the little kid who's a terror on the floor. Yeah. That story is, is terrific. Sure. I don't want yeah. to give too much away for folks who are going to listen to the podcast. But uh, I want to play a clip from Maxine Frere. Tell us about Maxine Frere. Give us a little setup and then we can hear from her. Yeah, Maxine is one of the truly remarkable people we met. We met incredible people. She was one of them. She spent 40 years as a nurse at Harlem Hospital. She was born and raised in Harlem, grew up in the shadow of the hospital, knew her whole life that she wanted to be a nurse because uh, doctors uh, fix bodies, nurses, you know, help your soul. And so um, when other people on staff at Harlem Hospital were afraid to work with people with AIDS, um, Maxine volunteered. She stepped right up. She said, um, I need to do this for my community. And um, and so she uh, ran clinical trials for children with AIDS and then uh, was just, I think, the head pediatric nurse dealing with HIV and AIDS and a truly uh, incredible human being. This is a clip from Blindspot, Plague in the Shadows, Maxine Frere, pediatric nurse at Harlem Hospital, who talked about what it was like to treat children with the virus. The death was hard. It was hard on all of us. Um, but I think the preparation helped us get through a lot of it, you know, be able to talk about it amongst ourselves because we needed to have a little counseling sometime ourselves. Crying all the time was very difficult. They trusted us. They trusted us emphatically. I think most of them. I remember one little boy said, if I didn't have HIV, I wouldn't have met you guys. <laughs> he said, I wouldn't have met you. What kind of support did these hospitals have? Well, I mean, that's what's actually remarkable. They had very little support. Harlem Hospital is a public hospital. Mm -hmm. um, public hospitals have always been underfunded, but in the 1980s, it was an era of austerity. After the fiscal crisis, the city yanked a lot of funding from, frankly, all public resources. Um, there's a story in our episode where the head of the whole pediatric ward talks about not having Robitussin. 
You know, they didn't have sheets a lot of the time. It was it was really bleak. Um, and you had many, many children with HIV who were arriving on the ward. We explained sort of why and how that happened. But out of what was really uh, an economy of abject scarcity, people like Maxine and her remarkable colleagues um, – they just sort of made do. Sometimes, you know, when on the material front, they would literally go to the private hospital uh, next door and steal Robitussin and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they were just hustling to get what they needed, and they did, and all power to them for that. But really what they supplied was, this is going to sound cheesy, but remarkable love mm-hmm. and courage. Um and in the face of a system-wide social collapse, like we're really we're not, you know, when I say social collapse, I don't mean within the community. I mean really by the city not showing up. Um, you had people who showed up on a very personal level to try to provide family support, care, treatment in the face of an illness where there was very little of all of that. Terry, what would you consider your greatest victory? You know, in terms of advocacy, that's uh, it's such a hard question mm-hmm. because, uh, as as um, my friends here were both saying, you know, really ninety uh, three, you know, the treatment breakthrough happened in ninety five. So really, people were dying in huge numbers. So at the right, mm-hmm. right at the time, we actually won the class action against Social Security about the use of the AIDS definition for being discriminatory. Um, was the precise moment where Katrina Haslip died, where mm-hmm. all of the clients were dying. So um, at the moment where where the activists, the litigation, all of it led to this these kind of final policy wins, it didn't feel like a win at all because all of the people we had fought side by side with were dead or dying. Um, but when we did win that, that whole major expand the definition, get the social security criteria mm-hmm. changed. The numbers of women and particularly women of color went up over 40%. You know, so it, it did, all of this activism did change the perception yeah. and did put women and girls, um, you know, kind of on notice of the, the, the risk and the possibilities and all of it. Um, but it's hard to use the word victory. Mm-hmm. Um, in any of this, frankly, change maybe change. Yeah, the biggest yeah. change, the most important and yeah. important change is a better yeah. word. Yeah, thank you for saying sure. that. Sure, Akia, tell us about uh, what's going on downstairs in the green space. <laughs> oh my God, I'm still just in that Maxine episode. I mean, I know. Yeah, that all of the episodes really shook me. I got to hear mm. some of the drafts. Oops, I don't know. I'm supposed to say that. I got to hear some <laughs> totally of the drafts, fine. but um, they shook me so. Hard. I sat with that Maxine episode so hard. I think mostly because I'm so much also a part of that history. Yeah. And to learn about that history now at 33, I think really shook me. Um, but that's why I'm here at the Green Space, <laughs> continuing to help educate people through art. Um, right now I have images that are up of different subjects from Plague in the Shadows, including Terry, including Maxine. Mm-hmm. Um, tonight we have an amazing docu-theater performance, which is looking at the CDC um, hearings. Um, So you'll hear some of those voices of women that were really um, very vocal and very uh, enraged, which is beautiful and powerful. Um, On Valentine's Day, I am hosting the first Love Positive Women Valentine's Day dance here at WNYC. No, here at the Green Space. Um, It's going to be really beautiful with curated music by DJ Isas Lobas. And we are celebrating women living with HIV. And then on the 
23rd, February 23rd, I'm actually going to be having a listening party slash live musical performance of a project that I'm working with, um, working on with my father, Warren Benbow, and my brother, Ken Michael, two amazing uh, veteran musicians. The name of the podcast is Blind Spot, Plague in the Shadows. My guests have been Keila Beja. Go check out all the art and the dancing and the music and all that good stuff in the green space, (laughs) as well as Terry McGovern. Terry, thank you so much for your time as Lizzie Ratner, reporter on this series. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. Thank you you very much. Thank you. On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week, we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts.